Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Chris Cottonor, executive producer of Deep State Radio. We are incredibly grateful for the support of our members. February is Member Appreciation Month, and to celebrate, we're offering membership to new members for $1 for the first month or $50 per year. Members receive access to bonus content, member-only briefings delivered on Wednesdays and Fridays, access to our member Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and much more. We'll also be calling out new members and those who have been supporting us through the years in our upcoming shows. To become a member, which goes a long way to supporting our work, please visit bit.ly slash dsrmember. Use code FEB2022 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash dsrmember and use code FEB2022 at checkout. Nine. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. Uh, Normally at this time of the week, we're talking about domestic issues, but we're going to go back and continue to have a conversation about Ukraine, uh, given everything that is going on in that country. We are pleased to be joined today by Ambassador Douglas Lute, who was the former U.S. permanent representative to NATO during the last four years of the Obama administration. He's a career military officer, rose to the rank of Lieutenant General was a Deputy National Security Advisor. Hi, Doug. How are you today? I'm well. Excellent. And uh, we have our friend, David Sanger, who is in Munich, I believe, for the Munich Security Conference. Do you feel secure, David? Well, uh, not yet, but it's um, it's going to get interesting because the diplomacy side of trying to persuade the Russians is going to move here. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. So as we speak, uh, both the Secretary of State and the Vice President are flying here. Well, we will talk about that in a moment. We're also joined by Teresa Fallon, who is the founder and director of the Center for Russia, Europe, and Asia Studies in Brussels, and previously serves a member of Strategic Advisors Group for the NATO Supreme Allied Commander. Welcome, Teresa. It's a pleasure to be here. This has been a, a, an eventful day. We have seen the Secretary of State of the United States address the UN Security Council. He repeated essentially in tone and structure the message and approach that senior U.S. officials have used for the past few days. He outlined both uh, the, the threat that is posed by Russia. He continued to sort of selectively share U.S. intelligence as a way of anticipating what Russia would do something David has has written about, and he kept open the path for diplomacy, although events around the borders of Ukraine seem to suggest that diplomacy is, is not making much progress, and that includes the Russian response 
to the U.S. letter that was sent a few weeks ago. And I can summarize, you know, the Russian response in a variety of ways. Choosing less colorful language, essentially, it was go jump in a lake. It was not super constructive. So it looks like uh, things are tenser today than they were yesterday. And as David and I were saying moments before we went on the air, and a lot of people are thinking that this uh, will turn to military action in the next several days. And that indeed is what the president of the United States said today. So that's the framing of all of this. And the first place I'd like to do is to just sort of go to each one of you and get your sense of where we are and whether I characterized where we are properly. Let me start with you, Doug. So, David, first of all, thanks for asking me to join today. I'm on the undecided list. And I think joining me on that list is is Vladimir Putin. I don't think he's decided. I think that he is very much an opportunist. Most of his tactics so far suggest he's into generating options for himself. You know, you've seen this sort of dialing up of the narrative, dialing back of the narrative, apparently several false flag attempts to see what reaction he would get on that front. You've seen him meet individually with Biden, Macron, and the chancellor from Germany, Schultz, perhaps looking for fractures, fissures, ways that he could divide the alliance. And so far, I think he's been frustrated in that attempt. So I don't think he's decided to go in yet. And frankly, you know, he enjoys this position. He's got a lot of options in front of him. Everyone's paying attention to him like they haven't in years. And uh, he feels, I think, in control. But I don't think he's decided. The only place his uh, personal diplomacy seems to have made him any progress is with Brazil's President Bolsonaro, which, uh, of, of course, has no impact on this whatsoever. Teresa, where do you think we are right now? Well, I think that even President Putin doesn't know what he's going to do every morning when he gets up. I think it's very much up in the air. And I think every day he likes to see what's happening and he tries to figure out what's the next best move to do. But I think it's almost Asian, how, you know, like Sung Tzu, um, how you can win without fighting. And so by having all of these massive exercises, he's been able to see how the West, I think he assumed as that there would be some breakage, that the West wouldn't come together so much. So it's really given NATO its mojo back. And instead of having less NATO, he's actually getting more NATO because we're seeing troop movements, assurance measures, deterrence. And I think also, as Ambassador Lutz had mentioned, you know, everyone's beating a door a path to Moscow, sitting at that massive table. And it's become a meme. I mean, it almost looks like one of, you know, like a cheap uh, Bond villain. And that huge table. So everyone's had their place there, including Viktor Orban, but nothing's given. We have seen some concerns like hairline fractures in regard to possible sanctions. I mean, that's under discussion, but I think if push came to shove, they would do it. The publics are behind them, even though the gas prices are increasing in Europe and there's a great deal of concern about that. But my tree is blooming in my garden. It's not that cold now. I mean, we're, we're, worse, we're over the worst bit of the winter. And I've been reading that's about six weeks of gas supply left. So it wouldn't be so traumatic, I think, for a large section of Europe. So that's how I see it. Thanks a lot, David. As is usual, as as I'm sure you feel is the way the world ought to work, the world is coming to you in Munich with the vice president and with the secretary of state. And for a while, I think it's going to be the, the focal point of all of this. What's your view? Well, there are a couple of interesting things that happened today. 
the Russians returned this letter, which is somewhat obscure, but as you said, didn't take us very far, other than the fact that it said, basically, we have no plan to invade. It sort of reminds you of when George W. Bush used to say, we have no plan to invade Iraq, right? But it also said that if we don't get satisfaction, we will use a series of military technical means, that same phrase Putin kept using in response. We're all trying to puzzle out what that means. Does it mean putting nuclear weapons in Belarus, where there is a vote scheduled soon to allow them back in? Does it mean putting them in the Western Hemisphere? Does it mean using cyber to try to sabotage Ukraine to the point that the state becomes hard to govern? I think most of the intelligence folks I've spoken to believe that Putin can't change the government unless he actually invades. But now that President Biden has laid out the red line, which is sending troops over the border, I think Putin thinks he's probably got a lot of options of things he can do short of that and then decide, for the same reasons you just heard, whether to go over the border. That said, the U.S. is pursuing a really fascinating strategy. By revealing this intelligence, by President Biden saying, as he said earlier today, that he thought that they would invade in just days, he runs the risk of being charged with being sort of the chicken little of the Ukraine crisis, that you know, the invasion is just days away. Secretary Blinken, in his speech, made it clear he would be perfectly willing to take the criticism that they were too alarmist if it turned out that the alarms themselves deterred Vladimir Putin. So he basically said, fine, that one's on me. If you think at the end of this, you know, we've overplayed this, I'd much rather have that than a war that kills tens of thousands of people. I can't remember a moment in the past decades of presidential history where you've seen an administration try that approach. And um, it's going to be interesting to see if it works on Putin. I think you're right. Doug, I acknowledge that you said that you and Putin were both on the fence right now. And uh, perhaps with both of you there, you can persuade him in, in what you think is the right direction. But let's set aside for a moment the possibility that he blinks or that he chooses options along the lines of what David just described, which is to say actions short of war or traditional warfare, whether it's cyber or whether it's some signaling moving nuclear weapons or so forth. And let's just play out the scenario that, that Russian troops move into Ukraine in force in the next X days. What do you think that looks like? So even inside that theme, he's got a series of options. On the light end of things, he could reinforce his standing effort dating back to 2014 to destabilize the Donbass by way of supporting these separatist proxies in uh, eastern Ukraine. He could do that. He could follow the Duma's lead and uh, declare those two provinces uh, independent then move in to support them with uh, in a humanitarian assistance, posing himself as, as the good guy. He could, in a limited way, attack in the South in an attempt to create a land bridge between the Russian mainland 
and the illegally seized peninsula of Crimea, which would help him logistically support Crimea for the long run. Anything, though, that I think poses an overt attack with Russian troops, Russian tanks crossing the international border with Ukraine is likely to trigger an immediate and substantial set of sanctions, which, of course, he wishes to avoid. So I think he's I think he will appreciate that he can't edge towards trying to be too precise in terms of subtlety here, because there's a chance that he'll trigger the sanctions if he moves across with military force. So my sense is he, he will avoid an overt crossing of the border with with Russian troops and will aim for options short of that. Teresa, do you have a, a, t- a take on this? I've been on a few panels with some Russians and they they tend to, you know, constantly reiterate that Putin said he will never invade. So, I mean, I don't know what that's worth, but I think that he can get so much by not invading. He can hurt the Ukrainian economy. We see planes aren't landing there. Ships, are, insurance companies don't want to pay for ships to go there. There's practically a blockade. So they can really destabilize the country economically without having to risk having sanctions on them. And so they're kind of getting what they want anyway without an invasion. And we've seen the movement of troops from the Far East, which means there's a tacit agreement between the Kremlin and um, Beijing on this. And so I think that's sending a really worrying message to Europe, this kind of Russia-China cooperation. But there's a danger, you know, China working or has this tacit agreement with Russia. How will that play out? Because Europe is such a huge market for them? And do they expect any sort of blowback? So I think that it's a dangerous game, not only for the Kremlin, not so dangerous for Putin, because he's getting away with all of this. No one's really pushing that hard back on him. They're only threatening sanctions should he invade. But I wonder what the case will be, because we're, we're talking about the new strategy for NATO, and China had been in that discussed a lot. Now that Russia and China really are appearing to be closely um, coordinating, I think that really changes the strategic landscape for many Europeans. You know, David, you bring up a kind of interesting scenario, and it follows out of both of these most recent comments. And that is, Putin doesn't invade. Putin instead says, you know, the West is threatening us more. They're forming battle groups in Eastern Europe. They've moved troops into Eastern Europe. NATO is clearly stronger. We have to take countermeasures to protect ourselves. And then he can unleash a group of countermeasures, none of which trigger the sanctions, right? Because the sanctions have been described as being triggered by invasion. And so if he launches cyber attacks, if he says, I'm going to leave certain troops on the border to look out after the security of these autonomous regions, if he maintains the threat for an indefinite amount of time with an indefinite number of troops, if he, as Lukashenko today said, he, you know, that they, Belarus might well accept those nukes, move some nukes there. And if he just plays footsie with the Venezuelans, the Brazilians and others for the foreseeable future, he could stay the center of attention. He could arguably continue to menace. And it's going to raise a question for the Biden administration. What do you do about that? So you've just described, and before you, Doug described, the world of minor incursions. Remember that phrase? It was President Biden's at his news conference back in January. 
It jumped out at me in part because I had asked him a question that led up to that, but there was nothing in the question that sort of forced him into where he went, which was we wouldn't necessarily do sanctions if there were minor incursions. And this led to a big scramble at the White House to clarify what he meant, because the Ukrainians said, what do you mean a minor incursion? Fearing it meant Russians would have just part of the country or something. And the clarification that came out from the White House was the president basically meant cyber paramilitary operations and all that. And I wonder when the history of this is written, you know, years from now, when we uncover the documents that, you know, took historians decades to get around the Cuban Missile Crisis, whether we will discover that Putin picked up on that line, whether he is now coming to the conclusion that, in fact, he could go do these series of destabilizing things, and that that's the way to split Europe. Because the Europeans aren't going to sign up for really big sanctions and take the backlash of having part of their gas supply cut off if they think that this is indeed a minor incursion. And that's the debate that's taking place among the Europeans. It seems to me that that's the path of least resistance for Vladimir Putin right now. If I could come in on this, this is David Sanger raises an interesting point. This is this tension between how much ambiguity and how much precision. I mean, how precisely do you draw the red lines in a deterrence regime? And you can see the trade-offs, right? On the one hand, a bit of ambiguity could be constructive, could leave your opponent guessing and so forth. But on the other hand, if you stay ambiguous, be very difficult to bring the 30 allies of NATO along with sort of an ambiguous open-ended threat. So I think the administration's trying to, you know, trying to a bit of a keyhole shot here, that is to be precise enough uh, that they can keep the alliance glued together, but not too precise so that you define deterrence reaction in a way that President Putin can tuck in beneath it. So it's a, it's a real tension here between ambiguity and precision. I might argue, Teresa, that if Putin maintains a menacing position, if he does, you know, deploy some more nukes, if he does maintain troops where he is in a position to move forward fairly quickly, if he does, you know, get more mischievous elsewhere in the globe, wouldn't that have the effect of keeping NATO forward-leaning and together as they have become over the course of the past past couple of months? Uh, well, I would, would agree with you on that, but we're not talking about China at all anymore, right? So this is very useful. It's distracting the presidential administration from their number one priority, which is China. So we're talking about Russia, Russia, Russia. This will mean that the U.S. will have to have more activity in Europe because they've been talking about pivoting to Asia since the Obama administration. And so I think that this kind of coordination with China, and I think that this is the same technique uh, Beijing uses in the South China Sea, this gray zone activity, this kind of salami slicing. So you just below the threshold, so you can't fight back. And so I think that that's a technique that uh, I think would stand Putin very well. And it will keep the U.S. and Europe completely engaged and watching and being concerned. And they got their eye off the ball where it really matters, which is China. So I think it's more of a geopolitical strategy coordinated between Moscow and Beijing. I think it's really clever, actually. And I think that 
that's all we, we're talking about here in Brussels is, you know, what's happening in Ukraine and the other distractions, you know, everyone's just laser focused on this, this issue. Well, I, w- I would say that the administration did make a concerted effort for Secretary Blinken to go to the Pacific a week ago and to say we can walk and chew gum at the same time and we're going to maintain our focus there. But David, you know, this issue, whether you call it minor incursions or gray zones or or hybrid warfare or, you know, means short of traditional invasion, looks like a very comfortable place for both Putin and the Chinese to play for the foreseeable future, because nobody wants a big war. One of the things we have to think about here is, supposing we don't have an acute crisis, supposing this is the new reality for some long period of time. And that would look a lot more like the old Cold War. Doug remembers the old Cold War. He was here in Germany during it, right? Um, so um, The old inter-German border, which of course- that, That's right. So obviously it would have new elements to it. During the Cold War, Doug didn't spend a lot of time thinking about fending off cyber attacks on Europe. And we didn't have a China that was deeply economically engaged with the rest of the world and with whom we could not stop trade without crashing both economies. So there are lots of new dynamics at work here. But if Putin decides that the best way to get Ukraine is to be the boa constrictor all the way around it, cut off its trade, mess up its networks, destabilize its politics. You know, that's a very long-term strategy. Now, a lot of people in U.S. intelligence don't think the Ukrainian government falls under that circumstance. And it's possible that it will just push Ukrainians more to the West, the way the attack on Crimea and the annexation of Crimea did in 2014. In which case, over the long term, this might backfire on on Putin. But he may well conclude that, you know, he can morph from the disruptor to the man who expands the sphere of influence again. And if he does manage to move his nuclear weapons out closer to Western Europe and so forth, then we're really back in some of the same issues that we were dealing with in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, no, I know you've been agitating for a new Cold War with China, but it looks like we may end up with one with Russia. Well, we could actually have both at the same time. <laughs> well, they, you know, if we face this two front, the Sanger War, right, the two front yeah. Cold War, you know, I think that actually in the long run, this could serve American interests, because I think in such a contest, if America really faced serious threats, both East in Asia and in Europe, that eventually, the European allies would need to assume more responsibility for their own defense, allowing the U.S. in a sort of division of labor, allowing the U.S. to focus more more substantially in the Pacific. So it'd be interesting to see if this anchors the U.S. in Europe, or does it actually serve as an impetus for the European allies to do more, allowing the U.S. to actually pivot, as as was uh, long imagined. That's a really good point. I'd like to pick up on that in one second. We take a little bit of a break at this point in our podcast, and we say thanks for joining us to everybody who is out there who's not a member, and we encourage you to become a member by going to the dsrnetwork.com, clicking membership, and being able to continue on in podcasts like this, which are extremely important in times like these. So we encourage you to do that. 
For those of you who are members, stand by. We'll be back in one moment. 